Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. I'm your host, Will Fett, and I'm here today with a teacher who is doing incredible things in her classroom, as well as a soybean researcher that will get to discuss all about the techniques that he is using in his job and the technology and innovation in agriculture. Jordan Spear. I work for Corteva AgriScience here in, uh, in Johnston. I've been with the company for uh, about 12, 13 years. I grew up on a family farm in north central Iowa. Proceeded to go to Iowa State following, uh, following high school. Began a career with Corteva as an intern, actually. That internship uh, spurred an interest in my mind to get a higher education beyond my bachelor's degree. And so I stayed on and got a master's degree in genetics, plant breeding. Took a full-time job with Corteva here in central Iowa. About a year into that, the opportunity came up to, to go back and get a PhD. And so uh, did that while working a full-time job uh, with Corteva and uh, finished my uh, PhD in 2013. And what's your... PhD was in plant genetics. Okay. From then, I took a new role leading a research center up in uh, Algona, Iowa, and now currently in the uh, Northern Evaluation Zone lead uh, for soybean research and development. Uh, what that amounts to is have responsibility for our soybean research and development operations uh, really north of here, so northern U.S. and Canada. All right, um, let's, let's break some of that down. Yeah. For those of us who aren't familiar with Corteva, who is Corteva AgriScience? Yeah, so Corteva AgriScience uh, was, was developed um, from the merger of, of Dow with DuPont. And then we, uh, we officially became a company this past summer and spun off and now a, a standalone ag company with a couple focus areas uh, in, in seed, in chemical, as well as in digital. So working uh, to really provide full solutions to farmers. And Corteva is tied in with uh, some of the legacy stuff with Pioneer yep. and Henry A. Wallace and, and the great Iowa history there. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the history of Pioneer, it was started... Uh, you know, back in the 20s when Henry A. Wallace, you know, he had the vision that folks needed to have access to hybrid seed. That hybrid seed would give producers uh, higher value. That gave rise to the company Pioneer. We were with DuPont for a while, um, and now it's our flagship brand as Corteva. We have multiple brands, um, flagship brand being uh, that of, of Pioneer. Now you mentioned that you started with uh, Corteva as an intern. What was that internship and how did that then progress into what you're doing today? Yeah, so I'd grown up on a family farm and uh, I was really passionate about staying in the ag industry. I really didn't come out of high school with a passion for science. It was more a passion of I want to stay on the farm or I want to stay in this industry and so I'll go get an ag business degree. That was kind of the first foot in the door, if you will, is I'll go get an ag business degree and, and become, maybe I'd manage a co-op, you know, or, or something like that. One of the groups that I got involved in that would give me a scholarship said, to get this scholarship, you have to go into a science-based field. Well, ag business was not science-based. And, uh, and so it was, you know, I had to sit down and think to myself, well, do I change my field to keep the scholarship or do I stay, you know, where I'm passionate? And 
really I was rooted in the fact that I wanted to stay in ag. You know, hey, let's give science a try. From that, I, I did an internship with uh, Pioneer Hybrid at the time in one of their soybean research centers. It was a six-month internship. Um, I thought, you know what, I'll never be this young again. I'll give this a try. Absolutely loved it. And really what it did is it gave me a, a reason to, to steer my education in, in a certain direction. It gave me a purpose. And, and once I figured that out, it was, okay, focus on, on science, focus on getting a degree. From there, it was just kind of keep going. So you started in soybeans and it kind of shaped your career. Yeah, started in soybeans and, and uh, been in soybeans ever since. <laughs> so soybeans can be grown out all over the world. Uh, why are uh, soybeans grown here in Iowa? Really, when you think about North America, soybeans came to North America as a forage crop originally. And so think about alfalfa, grass hay, uh, those kind of things. As time progressed, it became clear that soybeans could actually be a vital resource or a source of protein. And so today, soybeans is the, one of the most major sources of protein uh, in North America. Turns out to be a, a very nice fit in, you know, in our commodity for, for farmers. So you alluded to a couple of things and you kind of generically said protein, but give us an idea what kinds of products might we find soybeans in? So when you think about soybeans, soybeans can be, you have the enamames, for, for example, which would be, a, you know, where you're actually eating the, the, the soybean. You have a lot of tofu anymore as we're thinking about alternative sources of protein. A large portion of what soy is used for is, is animal protein. And so a majority of poultry swine rations today, a major proportion would be soybean. And then the other piece that we don't talk as much about, but again is a big part of soybean, is you take the soybean seed and you compartmentalize it. You might have 30, 40% of the, the seed is protein. You have another 20% that's oil. And that piece is a great source for common vegetable oil. And that might be something that the average home cook doesn't really realize is when they buy a bottle of vegetable oil, it's not probably coming from celery or That's carrots. Exactly it's probably right. coming from soybeans. That's exactly right. And, and uh, Corteva, we've been on the cutting edge of that business. And some folks may have heard of our Plenish uh, soybean product line. That's a, a soybean that produces an oil that has better oil quality. What we did was we actually um, we made the plant produce an oil that's more like canola oil or, or sunflower oil or you know other other types of oils that are higher in oleic acid which gives um, end users like uh, like a McDonald's and people like that the ability to use that oil for much longer um, they don't have to change their oils out so so quickly um, and it also eliminates trans fats and so as we've been hearing more about trans fats and things like that uh, the, the plenish oil um, actually eliminates the need for hydrogenation, which causes that those trans fats. So the oil itself is a much healthier oil for human consumption. So this might get over my head really, really quickly, but you said you made the plant do that. Yeah. The soybeans aren't robots, so what did you do to make the plant <clears throat> produce a high oleic acid? Yeah, so there are multiple ways that we can affect a plant to do those kind of things. And so you think about traditional plant breeders, we can screen what we call a list of accessions, which are just historical lines that may vary for all kinds of different traits. Some soybeans have black seeds versus yellow seeds. Some have big leaves versus small leaves. You can screen those and find certain lines that might have had a mutation or a change in the DNA at some point to give you a different oil content. Just like we found varieties that have yellow seeds instead of black. It was identified pretty quickly that black seeds do not go into a protein powder very nicely. 
because it looks like bugs or it looks like you know contamination and so you need to have a visually appealing soybean in that case we needed to have yellow soybean to give us that visual appeal and so far you're just talking about traditional <clears throat> crossbreeding methods yep. pairing one plant with another plant and getting an offspring a hybrid yep you can go through all that type of process and then you know once you've exhausted all of those options we have other tools like crispr cas or we have other biotechnology tools that we're not going in and inserting a tomato gene into a soybean plant we're simply turning a gene on and off and, and we can do that today uh, much quicker than it maybe would have taken us 10 years before to do you know traditional breeding. So turning a gene on or off, just break it down simple as you can. What does that look like? Yeah, so each gene in a soybean plant, or just we don't want to talk soybeans, we can talk any kind of plant. Each gene has um, what we call a promoter region. The gene itself will produce a protein. What drives that is, is what we call a promoter region. It's like a light switch. You know, you can almost think about it that way. You could turn that light switch on and off by making one change of an amino acid in a protein sequence. And by doing that, the plant turns its light off, for example. What we used to do through traditional breeding or mutagenesis, you know, like, like we've had in the past, we can now do with these tools and be much more precise and accurate and not affect uh, other parts of the plant. So modern research has really allowed you to be very precise and accurate with these processes and much quicker than traditional yes, crossbreeding. For sure, 12, 15 years ago, what we would have had to do is, is take two varieties, cross them together, and grow a bunch of offspring in the field. And, and you know, go out and just observe and look for the ones that might have a different trait or something like that. We no longer need to do that at that level. We can do it simply by looking at the DNA and knowing what's going on. And we can correlate those genetics to what, what they'll mean when we grow them in the field or a customer grows them in the field. So earlier I asked you why we grow soybeans in Iowa, but let's talk about it more from the standpoint of the sustainability aspect of crop rotation and what does a soybean plant give to the soil? Can you give us a, a little sense of, of some of those ideas? Yeah, great topic and one that we're taking really serious at Corteva as we think about moving forward, the importance of not only improving what we have today, but, but allowing us to continue to make gains in the future is really important. So, you know, specifically to the soybean plant, it's kind of like a renewable resource if you will and that you know you can continuously grow soybeans one of the things that makes soybeans unique is that it produces its own nitrogen through nodulation and so it, it'll have nodules on the roots that uh, once activated it'll actually produce that nitrogen and use it as the plant but it'll also leave some of it so it'll produce some that it doesn't use so those little bacteria that are living in the nodules are yep. pulling nitrogen out of the air so that the soybean can use it, yep. but then leaving it for the next year's crop? Yeah, and so it won't need it all. The plant is so efficient in making it, it'll leave some of it. And so producers give their next year's crop a credit. What that'll mean is they won't need to apply as much nitrogen, say, on their corn crop or, or another non-nitrogen producing crop. Let's back up to what we were talking about earlier with some of the genetics and the plant breeding. We've talked a little bit about the hyaluronic oils, but what other traits are you looking to either emphasize or detract from in yeah. the soybean plant? Yeah, so, so a lot of what I do obviously is focusing on new traits or making sure that our products that are coming to market have the traits our customers need. So when we think about traits, what we're really talking about are a couple different components. One would just be what are some traits that protect the plant's ability to produce the yield that it's built to produce? 
So in soybeans, there are things in the soil, there are stresses that may, that may happen that will reduce the probability of getting maximum yield for that plant. How I think about it is when a customer plants the seed, it's going to put the most seeds on its plant that it can. During the year, it will exhibit some stresses that will only reduce that. You know, it's not going to add to it. A lot of our traits actually help protect the plant and help it achieve what it set out to achieve. And so it might be a, a soybean cyst nematode resistance, for example, which is a soil-borne pathogen that really kind of just eats away at the plant and the plant doesn't have the ability to fill all those seeds. And what we're talking with on that is a soybean pod might typically have three seeds per pod and not filling that full pod so it might only produce two seeds instead of three yeah it can, it can do that it can also do where the plant won't put as many pods on or the other thing is it the seeds in each pod might put three in but each seed's smaller it's important to our customers their investment is actually returned based on how much weight does that plant produce it doesn't matter if it produces 10 seeds but they're really big you know that's fine because a farmer will will haul his truckload across the scale and get paid by how much weight he takes across his scale. So if you had three really big seeds or, or right. even if you could squeak out four seeds per pod, right. exactly. that's, that's going to be better for the Ex farmer. Exactly. And so we have used breeding to bring together the right genes to make the plant less susceptible to uh, said situation. So iron chlorosis or sudden death syndrome and those kind of things. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to, when we sell a customer a bag of seed, we want it to be as close to 100% probability that that bag will produce what it wants to produce, you know, because we don't want the farmer to have to be making the compromise. We'd rather take care of it with genetics. And not to oversimplify, but really what you're talking about is just keeping the plant healthy. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah. Just like us as humans, if we wanted to stay healthy, we need to eat right, we need to get good sleep, and we need to exercise. <laughs> That's right. Well, plants need <laughs> calcium and nitrogen and phosphorus and some of those basic nutrients, and then to not be faced with diseases and not right. be stressed. Yep. So you, you mentioned the farmers are your customers, but obviously it's the consumers yeah. at the end who That's are right. going to be eating these soy-based products. How do farmer trends dictate what you do, and then how do consumer trends dictate yeah. what you do? It's a, it's a big part of what we do. Consumers want transparency. Consumers want to know where their food comes from. You know, they want to have that that uh, almost family connection, if you will, to who grew my potatoes. You know, I go into five guys and you know there's a sign there saying whose potatoes are we using today those types of things are really important to the consumer today making sure we as an organization stay connected to that maybe we're going to be more transparent in this area or maybe we're going to focus our research efforts in this area you know at one time as pioneer our focus was on new genetics it was you know developing new corn hybrids new soybean varieties you know that was kind of specifically our part of the market Today, it's about selling a solution to the farmer. You know, seeds is one part of that solution. So is controlling weeds, so is sustainability, so is uh, marketing, um, so is, you know, any sort of digital resource that farmers may want for predictability and things like that. And so, you know, we talk a lot about the customer. Uh, your, point's, your point's valid. We talk a lot about the customer, but the important thing is the consumer is, is who's going to buy that ultimately. Consumers and farmers have a really, a really unique relationship. There's a lot of trust there. 
And I think it's our role in industry to build the trust between ourselves and the consumer, ourselves and the farmer, obviously. Us and the farmer, that, that kind of makes sense. It's kind of obvious. But really, that, that relationship with the consumer um, is one that we need to build and continue to focus on. You mentioned transparency. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about safety and regulation. So you go through this research process. Are we eating those soybeans next year then if you come up with a fancy new trade? <laughs> yeah. No, no, it does not happen that quick. And you think about transgenics and the rigorous testing that our government has put in place that each idea really that that, we're, that are tested that have to go through to prove safety and those kind of things, that's not our decision. We can provide the science to regulators, but ultimately it's somebody outside of our company making those decisions and they're going to make them science-based. And those somebodies are the United States government, yep. the United States Department of Agriculture, Correct. the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency. Correct. Exactly. The, those are the three big regulating agencies, right? Yep. Yep. 99% of what we do gets thrown away because it doesn't bring value to our customer. Now, the, the 0.1% that we do, it's still that will go through the same rigorous regulations that the government has in place for any trade that we put out there. So, so what does that timeline look like? How many days, weeks, months, years are you spending on research and how many days, yeah. weeks, months, years are spent on regulation? Yeah, so from the time that I decide here's what my customer wants, I'm gonna make a cross between two soybean varieties till a farmer actually can plant that variety that I develop um, is about eight, nine years. And so today I'm sitting here thinking about, okay, what's a farmer gonna want 2028, 2029? Um, because it's gonna take that long to prove that this product is something the farmer wants. Something they want and something that's safe. And something that's safe, yeah. yeah. And that's not only the safety part of it, the safety part or the regulation part requires a whole nother level of approvals and things like that with the government agencies. And that can take many more years than the seven to eight years. And there's a lot of variability, but I've been told approximately 15. Oh, so, yeah. so seven to eight in the development period and then seven to eight more for regulation. Yes, for right. sure. Why do you think it's important for people to understand agriculture and the science behind agriculture? If I wasn't connected to a farm, why would I want to be or why should I be passionate in agriculture? And I, I think, you know, one of the big things is we need to continue to eat. Food security, food supply is a big part of our future. Obviously, agriculture plays a key role in that. We can go all kinds of different ways and end users and all that. The reality of it is the foundation of food security going forward and ability to produce an abundant amount of food for folks is rooted in agriculture. The reality of it is, is, is we need to continue to evolve. We need to continue to, to work with customers. We need to continue to work with, with end users to make sure that we are here tomorrow and we're here for the right reasons and we have the right products going forward. And, and then I think the other piece is just agriculture touches about everything. The importance of that being sustainable moving forward and being something that we can continue to be proud of and, and build on in the future is, is going to be really important. And, and we need everybody engaged in it. Everybody, including students. Everybody, including students. Very cool. Let's come back to soybeans. High level, what kind of technologies are modern soybean farmers and modern soybean researchers utilizing? Yeah, so from a research perspective, some of the bigger things is just advances in DNA characterization, I would say. So our ability to understand what does the DNA look like when two pieces of DNA are different? What does that mean? What does that result in to a customer? We can predict which strand of DNA, if you will, will work for this region. And because of that, then we can select the varieties that have that piece of DNA in Puerto Rico or in you know, an off-season nursery somewhere. So what it does is it speeds up our ability to bring new products to the customer. So that's probably the biggest advancement. Maybe the other one would just be 
data capture. So you think about what we can do with satellite imagery today, or we can do with drones, for example, with taking just standard pictures of things and then characterizing that picture. Those advances have been phenomenal. You know, obviously the customer, the priority is still trying to maximize the amount of seed that he produces or she produces on that acre. The things that have really changed probably how they do things, obviously equipment has changed a lot. Biggest thing is just better genetics. First thing is just make sure you buy the right variety. That's why we sell multiple varieties because they're not all the right variety for the right acre. But then with that, use all the technology you have at your fingertips. Whatever you can do and tools and obviously equipment as well. I mean, one of the big advances for a customer today is just the amount of acres that they can cover. Customers are becoming larger and so bigger equipment, you know, the 48 row planters 15 years ago, 10 years ago would have been like, we'll never have such a thing. But today they're becoming more standard practice. So couple final questions. Yeah. What is the worst part of your job? Oh boy. The worst part of my job. It's all great. <laughs> right? Probably the, the biggest challenge for me is things very seldom go as planned. I'm the type of guy that, that likes to have a strategy, a plan. The very seldom is how it actually goes. You know, ultimately we might get the same result. We take a different roadmap to get there. Uh, flip side of that, what's the best part of your job? Best part of my job, honestly, and I love it, is just working with, with people from customers, you know, growers, getting to work with them on a, on a fairly regular basis to witness the success stories. And then also just working with the number of people I get to work with at Corteva. We have a great set of people and I have a great team that I work with and, uh, and it's, it's pretty satisfying. Very cool. We just heard from Jordan Spear, who is a soybean researcher at Corteva AgriScience. And now with us is a teacher who has done some amazing things in her classroom, Dr. Dieta Anderson. Dieta, uh, you were our 2016 Iowa Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture winner. What is it about agriculture that you think is important for students to understand? It's the basis of our economy. So I think the students that live in Iowa need to know that it's science. And so there's just no part of agriculture that does not relate to my classroom. And it's so relevant to what my kids see as they drive and talk about with their family. And it's food. And I could always say I can get a teenager even if I talk about food at the very least, so to try to get them interested. So I just think it's, it's just really good applied science. What's kind of your educational background? How did you come to find agriculture as an important piece of that science puzzle? Well, that's kind of funny because I think I must have had a past life on a farm because ever since I was a kid, I have gravitated toward farming. My mom grew up in farming communities, but I didn't. And so when I had my first job, I was in a rural school and everybody was connected to farming, which was fun. And I just thought, this is relevant to these students. So I'm gonna start there. And, and I just dove in head first and I learn so much from producers. And the more I learn, the more I can bring back to the classroom. I just can't see any reason for kids not to learn about this because it's just everything we do. So it sounds like you're a lifelong learner, maybe train yourself on a lot of things, but what's yeah. your professional educational preparation? Well, I was a biology major, chemistry minor at Iowa State, and then my master's is in science education, my doctorate's in curriculum. Tell us, where do you teach now and how long have you been teaching? I teach at Center Point Urbana High School. I have been teaching there a long time, probably 
20 years. Took a little time off for my kids. What's your favorite thing about teaching? I like the creativity. I always have. I love developing curricula. I love sitting down and working out a lesson that is coherent and relevant and develops conceptually and all the concepts link together and I just like to come to the end of it and say I've done it or I need to tweak it. So it sounds like your classroom might have some flexibility in what things look like day to day but can you give us an idea of what does an average day, a typical day in your classroom look like? Well, we sit very little. I always say you start sitting, but you won't sit very long because we're always up in lab. And so, you know, I'm very hands-on. I'm very research-oriented, so the kids are investigating things. They may be given a research question or they may develop one of their own and they investigate it. I always say to the kids, tell me what you're interested in and we'll go that direction. And I do, because even if they take me in a road that I haven't gone before, that's fun because I get to learn something new. But we're busy. We are busy all the time. I'm not a teacher that gives notes very often at all. I don't sit still, so they don't get to sit still. (laughs) A lot of us have gone to school and sat in a class and taken notes and kind of memorized things as a, a method of learning, but that does not sound like what you do. How do you facilitate that student led learning? Well, it's not easy. I mean, it'd be a lot easier to give them notes, I guess, but it's so boring. You know, I give the kids learning targets, and I say, this is kind of where we're going, and I'll give it minimum vocabulary words they need to know. But then within that, I always make sure that there's some discovery element that's embedded in there. So the kids, when they're doing their research, they draw out new questions. I don't want to make it very static because science isn't static. And I want to make sure that that whatever we're doing leads into something, to the next thing, and so on. So it sounds like you're teaching the kids to think, to investigate, to explore. Why do you choose to go that route? Why Why is that important? I always say that they don't really need to know the parts of an atom for the most part, but they need to be citizens. And when they get out in the world, they're going to be reading the paper, and they're going to be listening. Well, now that nobody reads the paper anymore. (laughs) They're going to be listening to to podcasts and whatever they listen to. That They need to make judgments that require synthesizing your thought. It may not be the importance of the atom. I mean, I always try to keep it in in, uh, perspective. It's probably not not the parts of the atom that are as important as thinking about technology or thinking about how science interacts with your life or making decisions about your health based on some background knowledge. Sometimes, depending on the age, they don't get what I'm talking about, but I'm always trying to impress upon them that you're going to be out in the world knowing things, even voting. The other day, we just started a unit on climate. I said, at very least, it's a political issue. You're going to need to make judgments. And right now, a lot of their judgments are facilitated by their families and backgrounds. But they're going to have to make their own eventually. So obviously, it's important for the students to be kind of self-thinkers. And it sounds like you're leading them through that process. What specific topics of agriculture have you presented to your students or that your students have volunteered that they're interested in? One of the first kids, Elliot, said he didn't believe in GMOs. And that was the very beginning of our biology class. And GMOs, genetically modified. Genetically modified organisms. And I just thought, I just kind of had a wry smile. And I said, okay. We're going to learn about GMOs. So Elliot went off on his own. He did his research. Everybody did their research. 
And basically, that semester, the whole biology class was based on everything came back to GMOs. It was genetics came back to it. And what's an organism? And uh, what's DNA? And all those things. So everything kind of related back to that. So that worked out really great. And did Elliot become a believer? (laughs) Well, Elliot was highly influenced by his family's opinions. And I doubt I could move him away from that. But he sure wasn't a total denier at the end. He knew there was some science skills and knowledge that you have to approach things with. You got Elliot to think. I got, yeah, I did. I think. <laughs> good, good. Good old yeah. Elliot. Now I teach earth science. And to me, that just says agriculture all over it. So, you know, first couple of days I say, bring your dirt shoes because we're going outside. And I'm so lucky I got a, two farm fields three actually farm fields surrounding the school and a wetlands area. So we're out in the dirt digging and what's the relevance of looking at dirt? I mean, kids don't even garden anymore, but they know about agriculture. And we're out in these farmers' fields, you know, digging up, testing for permeability and the NPK levels. This was fun, before harvest and after harvest. So that was really interesting to see the depletion of soil nutrients there. Oh, so you actually measured nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium before the field was planted and then after it was harvested? Yeah, it was so interesting. And it's so cool because, you know, we have these crops and the leaves indicate nutrient deficiencies, of course. And I just get so excited about that. So one day, one day I pulled my car into the edge of a field and, and a colleague saw me and was wondering if I was okay, but I was, I was in the field pulling corn leaves off so I could bring them back to the classroom. <laughs> and I was just so excited and the kids are like, what, what is wrong with you? I go, no, but look, look, I found some nutrient deficiency for you. And then I've got people that go out for me. The, the librarian brought in corn cobs that had different signs of deficiency. It's just, you know, even the corn stalk itself, the roots, I I made my husband dig me corn roots as far down and out as he could go, and they sit upside down in my classroom so you can see the root development, and we talk about that. I I just, you know, you could take one plant at a time. We talked about how you get nitrogen in the soil, and we had a lot of producers come and talk to us, and, and kids' proper answer was, plant soybeans and I thought great they, they picked this up so so the kids knew about soybeans as a legume adding nitrogen to the soil they did because we had a producer come in and talk about how he maintains soil quality talked about that whole symbiotic relationship with the bacteria and pulling nitrogen out of the yeah, air to some extent I tried to get him to understand why you would plant beans and why you might rotate a crop and you know we talk about soil erosion I just I just love soil erosion I just think it's so interesting (laughs) and how much erodes every year in Iowa and when I give kids some facts on those they're stunned and so it makes it more interesting to them because they like big numbers we go out we we measure erosion we look at ways scientists measure soil erosion we evaluate the pros and cons of those because that's also very interesting Let me try and pull it back to one of the projects that I think you work on is uh, bioreactors. So farm fields have nutrients, nitrogen as one of the major nutrients in the field. 
that we don't want to lose that nitrogen into the environment. So at the edge of a farm field, we might install a bioreactor to convert that nitrogen back into atmospheric nitrogen. First off, can you give me a little bit of a definition or an explanation? What is a bioreactor? Well, a bioreactor is just a biological way to capture that nitrogen and let it sit there so it doesn't go into drainage water and that it does do exactly what you said back into the atmosphere. So tell us about the project that you did with your student. What, what exactly were they investigating? Uh, so how well do bioreactors work in removing nitrates and what kind of substrates, what temperature, what depth of substrates. We tested all kinds of variables on the efficiency in removing nitrates. So we had a starter level of nitrates and then they could decide how they wanted to investigate it. Some did various types of substrates, some did surface area of the substrate, some did temperature, depth, and so on. And then I had a a student do another research project on this for the Iowa Academy of Science where he He built these column reactors after looking at a research project that was done on this, and he let it percolate through and found some really interesting results. And it all started when, um, you know, we were looking at Iowa's nutrient management system. Nutrient reduction reduction strategy. strategy. That's it, yeah. Because I I went to school with Bill Northey, who was at the time our secretary of ag, and so I just emailed him and I said, hey, you need to talk with my class. So we started talking about bioreactors, and I thought, ding. I can do this. And with the wetlands next to the school, it's a bioreactor. It's perfect. So I've got that, you know, as a real live thing. And we go out and test soil there. And we do. We take soil from fields. We take it from the wetlands area. And then the kids can investigate Mm -hmm. things like that, too. There's lots of different types of bacteria out in the environment. The bacteria that's related to soybeans can actually put nitrogen into the soil, but then the bacteria that's in a bioreactor will convert that nitrogen back into the atmosphere. So it sounds like you're trying to show the kids the balance of natural systems and agroecosystems. Am I Oh, definitely, because sometimes agriculture gets a really bad rap. I mean, all you have to do is say dead zone in the gulf and everybody's hands go up and it's like oh well, who's responsible for the dead zone and well, why, what's the dead zone okay so the dead zone is a low oxygen area that varies in size throughout the seasons that comes from algae blooms and algae blooms come because all the fertilizers roll down the mississippi river from various farm fields into the gulf of mexico and so it doesn't take much to just look north and you start seeing where it all comes from so We're taking steps in our state and other states to to reduce that. And I think the kids need to know that farmers do feel responsible to do those kinds of things the right way. So a bioreactor at an edge of a field can help prevent some of that nitrogen leaving the field, going into the Gulf of Mexico and creating that dead zone. Right, definitely. Where everything is connected. Chain of events. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. It sounds like you see this, see agriculture as a way of making concepts real to students. But why take that extra initiative? Why go out to the field outside your classroom? Why not Why not just stay in the, in the classroom and make it easy? Well, I've never made things easy. Some days I think about, oh, I'm going outside today for three times in a row. But I, I think the main thing is they get hands-on. And they won't appreciate it unless they're there. I just think it's so important to take a handful of dirt and look at it up close and just 
just see the the mirror I just think it's miraculous I just love to talk about it and and have the kids see it and and this first time for these kids I, I, I can't believe it they don't play in the dirt so I make them get microscopes and, and magnifying glasses and just look closely at what's in there and it kind of opens up a world to them I do the same thing with sand we put sand under the microscope and they can't believe what sand looks like so soil is largely this thing that gets overlooked that we don't even think about it but it's incredibly important for so many reasons well you know that's why i don't really like to call it dirt because that just has a bad connotation (laughs) so i like to elevate it to soil and uh dirt is what you track into the house soil is what you grow good (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah, it's, it, it just makes it more real for the kids. And when they're testing the nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, then they're seeing the results. They're, they're going to remember it if they're actually doing it rather than stuck inside. I always say, you know, if it's earth science. You've got to be on the earth. You are doing some upcoming projects with soils with your students. You've got some soil probe instruments from the NRCS. Tell us a little bit about that project. What are you planning on? I'm so excited. I I just love this. So I started kind of previewing ideas that kids could do for research. And of course, I Google latest research in agriculture because I just thought, well, this will be fun. And I find this canola root research, looking at root development based on fertilizer use and just the beginnings of the root development. And they grew these roots in these clear root viewing boxes, which I've always wanted to do. So I started researching that, then I contacted the writers of the research paper, and then they were just so nice and helpful. And they said, well, have you thought of forage radish? And I said, I don't even know what forage radish is, so let me know, and they sent me some more ideas on that. So now I've got kids that are looking at the effects of fertilizer on root development in canola, the effects of forage radish on soil compaction. So we're using the penetrometer for that, and that's going to be really fun. I've got kids doing nematode research and looking at it being a um, bioindicator for pollution. Okay, let's, let's take those one at a time. The forage radish is typically planted as a cover crop, will break up soil compaction because the root kind of pushes the soil out and kind of aerates the soil. Why would we use a cover crop? Oh, well, you know, one really great thing about the classes at Centerpoint is that there's a botany teacher who loves to talk about cover crops as much as I like to talk about cover crops. So they get it on two sides of the hallway, basically. And so when I start mentioning cover crops, they already perk up. So cover crop, of course, is something farmers would put in their fields to reduce erosion, maybe help improve soil quality and soil nutrients. So these type of cover crops are really, really important. Forage radish is interesting because you don't necessarily harvest it. It just decays in there and provides soil nutrients, which I like too. But the science of planting cover crops, the timing of planting cover crops is super important, and I know producers are really looking into that. So cover crops are just really important overall for a lot of different aspects. And soil compaction occurs because we drive these big, heavy combines and tractors across the field, pushing the soil down, weighting the soil down. So we do need something to counteract that, and a cover crop like a forage radish would do that. Sure. 
You also mentioned you have a student group working with nematodes. One of the big issues in soybeans is actually a harmful nematode, but there's all sorts of varieties and species of nematodes that live in the soil. You talked about them being an indicator. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We're just beginning, but you know, there's a lot of organisms that are bioindicators. They're living things that indicate something's good or bad about the environment. And if they're thriving, and you want them, then that's a good thing. And if they're thriving and hurting soybeans, you don't want that. But what they're going to do is, is get some metals, and they're going to grow the nematodes in the auger plates with metals and see how that influences the growth rate. Metals like toxic yeah, metals? Yeah, toxic metals. Okay. Yeah. What is a nematode? Oh, it's just a cute little microscopic worm, pointy-nosed worm. Would everybody call it cute? Well, I, <laughs> I'm a science teacher, so everything's cute to me that lives. <laughs> Microscopic, though. So this is something that we cannot see without a microscope or some sort of magnification, but lives in the soil, and there are literally thousands of nematodes in maybe a square foot of soil. Sure, tons. Although a lot of times we can't find them. So one day we're out, and I pick up some beautiful moss in the parking lot at a park, and we put that under the scope, and there they were, just in the parking lot even. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was just, and they're just wiring around in the moss. It was just fun to look at. What do you see changes in your classroom when you do these real-world applications when you utilize agriculture? The kids like to come to class for the most part. Not every kid, but I think they like it. I think that one of the most important things that's happened is my relationship with producers. Because when they are there in front of the kids, I have have great students who are very respectful, and they'll listen to these guys talk. And they ask questions, and they get something out of it, and they see that this is really happening on a day-to-day basis for people. And I have a former alum of the high school come in who's a large-scale hog producer, And he's a good speaker. He is young. He looks like a football player. The guys are all looking at him like he's kind of cool. And he loves his hogs. Loves them. He shows that enthusiasm to them. And they they always want him to come back. Can he come back? Can we go to his farm? Can we do this? They want to know. I've had farmers Skype in with me. And one guy was talking about what he does to reduce erosion. And he was saying the exact same things we had done in class. And all the kids whipped over their heads and looked at me and said, they're looking at me like, what? We do that. We did that. We talked about that. And I'm like, yeah, I told you it was relevant. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like the student response is positive. I, I think so. And the producer response, too. I mean, not just... The farmers that you work with. Yeah, the producers are always so grateful for the chance. I mean, after I won that award, I'll never forget somebody coming up to me, and they just read it in the paper, and they had tears in their eyes. And they said, thank you for what you do. And I said, what? They said, we just don't always get good PR. And I, I, I didn't even really think about my role of doing that. But ever since they said it, I do think of that. I think of of how important it is for kids to live in Iowa to feel good about the people that are farming and the people that are producing the food. So, tons of good stuff. What's the worst part of your job? I don't... I mean, is it doing... Does this sound weird, but I can't think of anything I don't like right now. Is it doing grades? Is it... I like grading papers. (laughs) It's kind of fun. I I do. Uh, Because then it shows me if if I've done a good job teaching. 
so I, I always look forward to grading stuff. Um, I, you know, I guess it's, it's having these kids that you can't reach, and they might come from homes that there's a whole lot of bad stuff going on, and they bring that to the classroom, and then you can't, you just feel so bad if they don't do well, and you, despite your best efforts, can't do anything about it. I want every kid to walk out smiling, and if they don't, sometimes I can't control that always. But Well, Deanna, thank you so much for being with us here today. Pleasure talking to you, and I know that you're doing incredible things in your classroom, so best of luck for the rest of the school year and beyond. Thank you very much. Plant genetics, plant breeding, and all of the research behind agriculturalists help support what we do to provide food for our tables in our modern agricultural systems. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit iowaagliteracy.org. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.